Now, I would ask you to turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 14. We're going to read a very obvious part of the Bible together. And uh, perhaps some of the truths there are not quite so obvious. But Luke chapter 14. And uh, we begin at verse uh, 15. Verse 15 will do fine for now. When one of them that sat eating with Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said Jesus unto him, A certain man gave a great supper, and bad many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. They all with one consent, or without exception, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. I feel like saying full stop. <laughs> you know, and he says, and pray you therefore, have, I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house being angry, now there's an unusual word. Then the master of the house being angry said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men who were bidden shall taste of my supper. Sooner or later, you are going to come across the problem of whether it is right to put pressure on people to accept Christ as their saviour. It may have arisen in your own thinking, maybe your own theological upbringing, makes you ask the question, is it right at any time to put pressure on people to come to Christ? Now, some people believe that this idea began with Professor Charles Grandison Finney. Uh, with his anxious seat, he was dealing rather drastically with judges in the high court in those days, and he knew that it was pride that kept them from coming to God. And so he called for an outward declaration of their response. Now some people think that what has been called the appeals system, or the invitation system, a book written recently was called the invitation system, they think it began with Finney. And it degenerated into the penitent forms, I suppose, of the Salvation Army. Now, I would like to say to you here today that we, some people don't need the lecture I'm going to give you now. They are so constrained, they have what Dr. Jowett called a passion for souls. They don't need an argument to go for souls. They are irresistible as one man prayed, oh God, give me Scotland or I die. Marshal Chalice said to me, David, pray for me. If God doesn't give me souls, I shall die. We don't have maybe that caliber now. But there are some people who don't need that. They have it in their hearts. And uh, my talk would fall on deaf ears. But now, since the question has been raised, and it is raised, and uh, there are people who get very angry when people do things to uh, help people in the decision, then it, we might as well answer them. Now, I'll be frank with you. I'm not really a great 
uh, appeals evangelist. I've been an evangelist for 40 years. I'm not really a great appeals evangelist. My principle is that when God has worked, then almost anything is justified. I would ask them to stand on their heads when God has worked. But uh, it, the, 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 the basic irreducible minimum is that God has worked. I hate to see men making up in the appeal for lack of power in the sermon. You understand, the sermon lasts for 45 minutes and there's been no power, so the appeal lasts for another 45 minutes. Now that for me is preposterous. But now there's a theological answer to this question. Now, nowhere in the Bible will you be guided on this issue, or in specific terms, but there are strong hints. And I read to you this morning a parable. Now, purists will want to say, ah, now wait a minute, you're talking about the parables of the kingdom and so on. But the fact of the matter is that in this parable there are three classes of people. And I want you to notice the difference in them. There was one class of people who had already been bidden. Go and tell those that were bidden to come. No argument, no details, just a peremptory order in the name of the king. Everything's ready, come. They didn't need to have the information. They had it already because they had been bidden. Somebody had been there before the servants. Now I'm going to speak about something that has been in the human heart long before you and I begin to talk to them. There's something that has been going on in the human heart. Ah, but they were told to come. No argument, come. Now class number two were not told to come. There was a second class. They were to be brought. Go out quickly into the streets and lay into the city and bring. They were not told now come, but they were to be brought. And if you look at the details, you see why. They were the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, who would love to be there, but didn't know how. But there was a third class of people, and they were to be compelled. And uh, we do not mean here physical compulsion, uh, although sometimes I wish it were. <coughs> I've got three very tall men in my church. But it doesn't mean that, unfortunately. But they were to be compelled. Now, Jesus might be having a go here at the Jews, who were told to come, and the Samaritans, who were to be brought, and the Gentiles, who were to be compelled. Could well be. It doesn't say so categorically. But there's a very strong hint. that to some people, you are to go, and you say, you know all about it. You know what, you know where, the only thing you didn't know is when. Now I'm going to put the finishing touches to the invitation, the when is now. Everything's ready, you are to come. And there is a class of people in this world, you and I are to put them on the spot before God. And say it's a high time that you came to Jesus. If anybody knows, it's you. I remember once... I was in Tantrasant uh, in South Wales. If you can pronounce that, you can go home early. <laughs> but I was, I was in Tantrasant, you see, and it was November. It was ever so cold. Oh, it was terribly cold. And uh, people said to me, Dave, they said, there's a man in this church, watch him. His name is Osborne. He's always after preachers and he'll be after you. Always arguing. He was a coal miner. Built like an oak. He went straight down like that. He could have had me for breakfast. But um, they said, watch him, watch him. He'll be after you. Always arguing with preachers. And uh, when I finished preaching this night, I happened to know this man's sister. She was a returned missionary and a sweet, devout soul, you see. 
Well, as I was standing in the church this night, and it was November and so cold, out of the corner of my eye I saw him coming down the aisle. I could tell by the way he came that he was all geared for action, eh? <laughs> And he said to me, uh, Mr. Shepherd, he said, Mr. Shepherd, uh, I want to ask you a question. I said, Osborne, I said, if you want an argument, find somebody else, because you're not having it with me. Oh, I said, but, 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 I said, you didn't hear me the first time, obviously. If you want an argument, find somebody else. You don't have it with me. I said, if there's a man on earth, knows there's a God in heaven. I said, it's you. No one could live with a sister like yours without knowing that God is a reality. Now, I said, if you want to accept Christ, we talk. If you don't, we don't talk. Is that clear? Oh, I said, what were you? I said, Osborne, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> See? <coughs> I said, I, I, I trembled at my cheek, really. <laughs> but now, and I'm not exaggerating one single syllable. Suddenly, his head fell. He said, Mr. Shepherd, he said, you're right. You're right. I'm always arguing. And what is more, he said, I will accept Christ. I said, now you're talking, man. I said, come with me. Now, why I said November, if it was cold in the church, it was arctic in the vestry. <laughs> Again, I'm not exaggerating. I was so cold, God is my witness, I remember turning up my collar. So there were no lovely hymns saying, just as I am, do you want to see your mother again, and so on. No. <laughs> two, two men, shivering in the cold. And Osborne said, oh God, he said, I'm always arguing, always arguing. But now I want to accept Christ as my saviour. And you, twelve years went by. Down the aisle one day came a man with a woman on his arm. He said, Mr. Shepherd, do you remember me? I said, I do, Osborne. <laughs> he said, at the time we, you were dealing with me, my wife and I were on the rocks. He said, but now we are members together in the Baptist church. There are some people, there's only one word for them. Come. You don't argue, because they knew. There was one class of people they were told to come. Because they must have known the details. And I, that's why I think Jesus must be referring to the Jewish people here. Now, there was another class of people, they had to be brought, they didn't understand, they couldn't find the way. So that I do not believe in bringing people, regardless of what they know, to Christ. God forbid, there must be a minimum knowledge. But we're there to bring, with some you, you have to compare. Now, since that is the subject I'm dealing with, I don't want to elaborate there. But the reason why they had to be compelled is because they were in the highways and hedges... They just would not have believed that a grand man wanted them at a great party. I've, I've given three reasons. They probably said, we don't believe it. Number two, we're not dressed fit enough to come. And number three, how much have we got to pay? He said, you get them. The servant, on the strength of what they knew, were to convey it to them. And when you read in Romans chapter 1 that salvation is from faith, to faith and in the new translations they say it's faith from beginning to end which I don't fully agree with Calvin suggests that from faith to faith means from faith in me to faith in him as if to suggest the gospel is more caught than taught and there is an element of conveying something to people now I don't want to make anybody the pattern today but D.L. Moody was he was unforgivable in the way he approached people. He said somebody in a in a bus one day, mind you, it was a period when God was blessing and moving. 
He said, are you a Christian? The man said, good heavens, you know. He said, well, it's about time you were. <laughs> he said, and he, and he prayed with him. And you know, that man, don't ask me how, but he, he went home and said to a man he was working with, are you a Christian? He said, I am. Well, you never told me about it. Oh, well, he said, you know, he wanted to know. But I'll tell you now, he said, you're too late, you're too late. I was in the bus today, he said, and uh, a tram car, actually, and uh, some man got me to pray. Now, I'm not going to suggest anything as drastic as that, but there are some people, you have got a confidence, you have got an experience, and somewhere or other we've got to convey that. A girl said to a friend of mine in the army, Sergeant Jones, you talk about Jesus Christ as though he were a real person. He said, but that's the only reason why I am talking about him, because he's a real person. And I think that there is a convey. Now, that's the first hint in the Bible. Now, there's a second hint in the Bible. Everybody agrees that on the day of Pentecost, something very wonderful took place. And Peter preached. And you bear in mind, uh, we talk about having to have long, long sermons before people can be saved. I don't know whether you got all the text in, in Acts 2, but it was not a long sermon. But it dealt with the issues where they mattered. And uh, there was a great conviction there, as you know. And after preaching to them, we are told, with many other words, with many other words did Peter uh, plead with them. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And uh, then said Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? And they said, repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 40, with many other words did he testify and exhort. The word exhort is a calling out. A calling out. I know of people in Wales, they're so... Uh, I don't know why they hate the word evangelist. It's, it's almost a dirty word. And uh, they, they don't want to use the word, so they use the word exhorter. I say, hey, amen, brother. I don't care what you say. They say, Howell Harris was a great exhorter. They, what they mean, he was an evangelist. Now, Peter preached the sermon in the power of the Holy Spirit, but now he says, come on, save yourselves. From this untoward generation. It's a funny word to use to a sinner. Save yourself. Because we're going to show it is God who saves the soul. But now that's an interesting hint. And in chapter 3 is a very physical example. I don't want to push this too far. But Peter met a man who was uh, completely paralyzed. And when he wanted money, Peter said, Sorry, I haven't any money, but I'll give you something better. And in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then, says the Bible, he took him by the hand. Now let me repeat, I wouldn't make a doctrine of this. But Peter had made the great gospel pronouncement that there was power in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And as if to say, come on man, come on, it will work. It will work. And he yanked him to his feet and his ankle bones received strength. I'm grateful myself for the man who got me started. I'd heard gospel preaching for many, many years in my church. I had been reciting parts of the Bible in the Sunday school. But somehow or other, somebody took me by the hand and said, Come on, David, about time you were coming to Christ. Now, I'm very grateful for that. A man said to me in Nottingham, David, he said he got converted in the morning. A man got converted on a Sunday morning. And he said later, he said, David, thank you for coming to the church and giving me a shove. Whatever he meant. But you remember know, a campaign in Nottingham? Not in your place, uh, but in the Bury Street, that Baptist church. And he said, thank you for giving me a shove. Not a nice word, but I think I know what he meant. 
Now, there are hints in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Paul says, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. People won't say, pardon me, now this is a word for believers. I'm willing to accept that. But the principle is the same. He was prepared to persuade people to get right with God. And I will therefore open up this subject with you. Is it ever right to put loving pressure, we don't mean coercion, on people to accept Christ as Saviour? Now what is my answer? I'm going to give you six or seven contributions. And please remember that not any one of these points on its own is a sufficient proof. But I think that together they will justify what you are doing for God. And here's the first thing I want to say to you. If it is right to plead in the sermon, then why is it wrong to plead when you are dealing with them face to face? Now, I've had the reputation of, of being a, they say, call me a high output preacher. In one, what I mean by that, I don't know. But uh, in one college I went to in Bristol, what a funny thing to say about a man. But I will admit to you that I bend every fiber of my being when I'm preaching to convince, to urge, I preach sin, I preach salvation, I preach repentance with all my energy. And people say, Amen, Dave, that was great. But now, once I've urged them in the sermon, I dare, according to some, not urge them anymore. Well, if it was so right in the pulpit, why is it so wrong in the pew? If I'm doing everything in my power to get people to see their need, to know that Christ is the answer, why is it becoming so wrong? And people will say to me, you should preach as a dying man to dying men, which I do, God helping me. But why don't you do it when you're dealing with people face to face? I'm so grateful for the man God used to bring me, Roy Hessian. How he urged, how he parried uh, my arguments, as Jesus did with the woman of Samaria. As she went off on another tack, he brought her back to the point. He got off the religious question onto the personal question. He argued the case. Now, is it wrong? Is it if it's wrong to do it in the personal, on the personal level, then it would be wrong to do it in the pulpit. Let's have nice dry sermons lasting for half an hour and do nothing more. And that's the first thing I want to say. To urge people in the pulpit is right. To urge them when you're down on the floor with them is just the same thing. A man said to me that Alistair Smith, the Salvation Army godly man, said to him one day, Joe Wiggins, some of you may know the name, David, he said he put five points to me, five questions. He asked me five questions. Jimmy, Joe, Joe, he said that, Joe, 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 that, Joe, that. He said, at the end of that, he said, I had no choice. I had no choice, he said, but to bow before the Savior. Now, it would be terrible to think that that's wrong. I think that it's part of the answer. Now, here's the second thing I want to say. When you're asking people to be saved, please remember that first and foremost, you're asking them to get right with God. To get right with God. So long as you emphasize the joy of salvation and the kicks of salvation, or even the privilege of salvation, there's an option, there's an element of option. Would you like to have this slide? But when the fundamental reason why people get saved is to get right with God, 
And I've been preaching this for years, that the first and primary reason why people should get saved is not for them to get something out of it, but for God to be reinstated on the throne of the human heart. Now to me, what, what, what God gets out of it is more important than what we get out of it. I'm afraid the emphasis, if you, if you want joy, come to Jesus. Friends, they get joy in drugs, they get joy in pubs, they get joy at football matches. As, as, as Sangster said, we are not offering people full life instead of scant life, but life instead of death. We're not right with God. The man who led my father to Christ, the Welsh revivalist, Tommy, he said, how is it between you and God? When you get saved, you get right with God. I tell young people, it's more important to be right than to be happy. But I'm never happier than when I'm right. To be right with God. Now, dear friends, there's no option about being right. No option about being right. It's never more right to be right later on than it is now. There's no difference between you being right and somebody else being right. This selective idea of salvation falls to the ground when we're talking about right with God. Are you right with God? Doesn't matter whether you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, it's beside the point. Are you right with God? Now when you can emphasize that as part of your ministry, then you've got the right to say to people, to be right with God is the most important thing in the world. So I think, yes, yes, I've urged people to get right with God and do it now. Get right with God. He tells you how. Or come to Christ who shed his blood and at the cross. Get right with God. Now here's the next thing I want to share with you. The impression I get from the Bible, the New Testament in particular, is that salvation is transmitted from person to person. Nobody needs to tell me this afternoon, this morning, that salvation is of the Lord. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Salvation is of the Lord. Somebody once put it this way, God thought it, God bought it, God brought it, God taught it, and I caught it. Now we're all going to be willing to say that this afternoon, this morning. But when you read the Bible, the impression you get is that it is transmitted from person to person. Cornelius was seeking after God in his own way and he was told to send for Peter but an angel had come to him and the angel told him to send for Peter. Why didn't the angel tell him how to get saved? The angel had come from heaven. He was there when Jesus came back. Why didn't he tell him? No, no, some or other. And not because Peter was Peter. It's transmitted from man to man. Now if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Tremendous. You've heard me talk on this before, so I won't talk on it in detail now. The Apostle Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 9, which is the most devastating challenge to the soul of a Christian. I want you to listen how many times the Apostle Paul uses the personal pronoun I in this short section. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Though I am free from all men if you like is in italics but what he means is I'm free from every obligation uh, for being saved I'm saved by grace alone whatever it is he says yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain 
the more. So there's three times already. I am three from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, uh, not being myself under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. Paul, you've got it wrong, man. It's God who saves. Not you, not me, God. Well, uh, very useful doctrine to convey the responsibility to God. Somebody says, God alone can save the soul, but he doesn't save it alone. And uh, if you and I are not what we are to be, and if we do not do what we ought to do, and if we do not say what we ought to say, you have the right to believe that somebody could be lost who might otherwise be saved. Now, there's a dreadful responsibility. It's a dreadful responsibility. I, I know that this cuts across uh, what some people want to say, but let me say this to you. It would be an awful thing to think, as the, uh, the Old Testament is more is stronger on the point than the New Testament. If you do not warn the people, when you see the enemy coming, then I will demand their blood at your hands. If you warn them and they don't pay any attention to you, right, you are free from their blood. Old Testament. Dear friends, a very convenient doctrine uh, to say it is God who does it all. It said of one Puritan that he prayed as though everything depended on God, but he worked as though everything depended on him. He was, a, a, he was an Arminian on his feet and a Calvinist on his knees. So I think it's a very good blend. That's why in Wales we're fortunate. We've got Calvinistic Methodists. Now you're not as lucky as we are. I'm a Calvinistic, I'm a Calvinistic Methodist. It's the English equivalent is Presbyterianism. Not half as good. But uh, the, the thing is this. Very convenient, very convenient. When William Carey had a burden for the world, some Leicester man said, William Carey, if God wants to save the heathen, he will do it without you. And aren't we glad that William Carey didn't listen to such doctrinaire pitfall? And he went out and became the father, almost the father of modern missionary work today. We thank God for the Moravians before him. Paul said, I, 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 I became... Now, Paul puts a limit to what he can do. He says, I'm only this and that to other people that I might gain the more. I can't save them all. Yeah, I, will, I will still only see some saved, but I will gain them all. And so I feel there's a responsibility on me to be something. I've always felt the obligation to be something. And uh, some people turn it into mysticism. Uh, there was a contention once between John Wesley and William Law. Because William Law was a bit of a mystic, although he wrote a magnificent book. The serious call to a devout and holy life which you should read. But Wesley had a contention with him. And Wesley had to write one day, It is a lively doctrine of demons that we are to engage in no spiritual work until constrained thereto. He said, I've got the bandage. 
Paul says in this same chapter, if I do this thing willingly, well, I've got my reward. What is the reward? That I'm enjoying it. But even if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed to me, I get up some mornings raring to go. I get up other mornings not raring to go. It doesn't make any difference to my work for the Lord that day. On one occasion, Wesley tried to put it to the test. He said, I made up my mind one day not to speak to anyone until I had a special constraint. When he got home that night, he said, I had spoken to no one. Somewhere or other, a corrupting doctrinaire point of view had stifled this urge. Of course, I suppose the truth must be told. It depends how much Christ means to you. Out of the fullness of the heart, says the Bible, the mouth speaketh. The heart gets so full, it comes out of the mouth. That's what I said at the beginning. Some people don't need this talk. You know, half an excuse. They'd be after souls. I've seen some of my elders sitting in the hedge with men in the village. And trying to lead them to Christ. Now, think about it. I said to you a little earlier, none of these on its, on its own is a, 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 a proof for me. And I've got to urge people. But take them together. Take them together. If from the pulpit, in my preaching, when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached, he preached with the rationale of the gospel, tearing away, uh, if you heard him speaking, he was a great preacher. And uh, he, he, he devastated people. He chased them out of every refuge. And we drank it in. We said, Amen. But now... If we were to do it then, and go to a man, Brother, what did you think of what I said tonight? Did you feel that God was showing you something? Where, where do you stand? Does the authority stop at the end of the sermon? No. I'm not saying that Dr. Martin believed that. What I am saying to you is this. We believe in it in the preaching, and I hope that you're going to be great preachers. I heard somebody say the other day, We've had enough preaching. Pardon me, you have not had enough preaching. You haven't started having it yet. <laughs> This generation hasn't started having preaching yet. Go out to be preachers. Never mind what they say about two hours music and ten minutes talk at the end. Just give the orders that it will be the other way around. Two hours talk and ten minutes in the middle. So the thing is, no. I believe in great preaching. I've tried by God's grace to be a preacher of the gospel for 40 years. Not satisfied even today. But here's the point. If I'm urging them into preaching, why not? Now, not only so the gospel is conveyed from man to man, according to what I read in the Bible. He that winneth souls is wise. They that turn many red to righteousness shall shine as the stars. Oh, you don't mean me, Mr. Shepherd? Well, who do you mean then? Somebody gave me his visiting card one day, Ken Anderson of Billy Graham Films. And on the card was, if not me, who? And if not now, when? has a good motto for life. If not me, who? And if not now, when? As a man aware that he had a brief for God every hour of the day. Now, here's something else that I want to say, which I trust will be a help here. I believe that the sin of man is willful. Now, I don't want to go into deep waters here because... I have reservations, I will be honest with you. I know that when I sinned against God, I was having my own way. All we like sheep have turned, have gone astray, we have turned everyone into his own way. The hallmark of the sinner, he wants his own way. The hallmark of the believer, he is led by the Spirit of God. 
We don't want our own way. But the unbeliever does. Now that's independence from God. Is it really asking so much that if sin is a willful act of a sinful heart, is turning to God in whatever measure asking too much? Now I had a book in the house some time ago, and forgive me if I did wrong, but I was, I was so nauseated by the concept that a man spent the time to write a book of about 190 pages on the great evil that is besetting the Christian church of today, the doctrine of free will. And even at the end of it, I wasn't sure what he meant by free will. I don't believe the will exists at all. I don't think there is a thing called will. A will only exists in the moment that you are using it. If the impressions on the mind are big enough to affect the affections, then the will will act accordingly. That's a theological doubtful ground. But here's the point I want to make. I know that when I said no to God, I said no to God. And I like to think that on the Saturday afternoon that I got saved, when I described my conversion, this is how I describe it. That the man who had said no to God for 20 years said yes. I didn't cry. I wasn't crying. I wasn't feeling all that wrought upon emotionally. But I knew that my whole life was no to God. I must allow something for the man who was under the anointing of the Holy Spirit dealing with me. Roy Hessian was mightily used of God. Mightily. I believe that in 1937, 8 and 9, there was a revival in Britain. People didn't notice it. I think Roy Hessian was at the heart of it. So I must attribute something to the fact that God was using an anointed man. But I found myself being asked, David, will you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your heart? And at half past two on a Saturday afternoon, I'd come out of the house to go and play the fifth round of pot black. And if you know what pot black is, shame on you. Because it's a sign of misspent youth. But the thing is this, I did not come out of the house that had a root about, about God and Jesus. I didn't mind tolerating God on Sunday, but for pity's sake, not on Saturday. That was my great day when I painted the town red. But I came out of the house to pay the fifth round of the sugar tournament, and Roy Hessian was staying next door, and he was after me. I knew he was after me, because I was going out of the window to avoid him, in fact. But, uh, but that day, he came out. And in, again, it was November. I went into the house almost reluctantly. But at about half past two, he says, David, will you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your heart? And I can never forget that I, I found myself saying, yes, now here I give the glory to God. There's enabling of the Holy Spirit, which is the unknown dimension. We'll come to that in a moment. But I found myself saying yes to God. Mind you, there had been years of being brought up in an evangelical church, admittedly. I'd gone away from it in the meantime. I admit all that. But sin is a willful act. Now, this is a great contention. Let me warn you now. Um, Finney was the great arguer in favor of the ability of man to obey God's law so that when he said he can't obey God's law, what he meant is I won't. That was his argument, you see, but it's too deep to get into here now. You see, part of the story, part of the story. You see, there are some parts of the Bible, they seem to argue the gospel. 
The whole of Romans is a rationale, it's an argument. It says in Romans that the great theme is the righteousness of God. He begins by showing that man has no righteousness of his own. Man in the, in the raw, chapter 1, man refined, chapter 2, man religious, chapter 3, no righteousness. But now, what man doesn't have, God has provided a righteousness in Christ. And he argues, argues. Now, what is the point of a rationale? What bit of man are you appealing to? Can't the philosopher said we are made up of intellect, emotion, will. Now which part of the man is the bit that matters? Some say, teach them all you can. And of course I'm all in favor of that. Tell them all that you can. The whole counsel of God. Others, sway them into the kingdom with choruses. Eh? And hold hands and eh, get them. Never mind, never mind. As somebody once said, uh, in pop music, it isn't the words that matter, it's the beat, it's the beat, it's the throb of the drum, don't, you want to tell them anything, just get them going. I've been in dances, and I've passed people within the foot of them, they never saw me, they were in a trance. God. <laughs> There's another part, which is the will. Now, it would be very wrong for me to stand here and say, it's not the will, it's not the affection, not the intellect, we, we could say to all of them, but it's amazing how we major on them. Okay, do major on them. Give them as much truth as you can. I know the man who got saved. He's a minister now. Do you know what brought him to Christ? You'll find it hard to believe. He was out on the road one day. Somebody asked him to come into the church. He got in. He didn't know what a church was about. He didn't know what a church was for. He didn't know what they did in churches. He just came in, sat at the back. And he heard one word. It was Jesus. Never heard it before. He just heard the word Jesus. He said, that one's for me. He's a minister of the gospel today, so don't think it was a, it was a fleeting thing. So be careful when you say, you know, you haven't preached enough. One minister told another minister he was changing pulpits. He said, now you preach for an hour. He said, I always do. It's good for them. Never mind if it was the dreariest, dullest, most ponderous hour. Never mind about that. Some people really feel the duller it is, the deeper it is, and the more ordained of God. There, there's no virtue in enduring the gospel. I don't think so. But now, and think about these things. Think about these things. Now, let me tell you something else. Do I urge people to come to Christ? Yes. I'll tell you why. Because I am not omniscient. I am not omniscient. Jesus said, or John, speaking for Jesus, said in John chapter 3, the, the wind bloweth where it listeth, you hear the sound thereof, but you cannot tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. There's an element about the work of the Spirit. I'm out of my depth. I confess it. One night in a camp I was leading for youth, the Holy Spirit went through the camp like a hurricane. Young people were screaming under conviction almost. They were crying, crying for mercy. I remember telling a, a Christian minister, a brother of mine, Hayden, I said, stand back, boy. We're out of our depth. I was aware that something was happening. We couldn't control it, nor did we want to. Now, I'm one of the first to say that there's a dimension of God's work. We are out of our depth. But that very fact makes me go for everybody because I don't know who to select. I don't know who to select. Somebody said to Spurgeon, you should only preach to the elect. He said, with pleasure, you fill the church with the elect and I'll preach to them. <laughs> a bit of a job here. Now, 
Spurgeon, of course, he, he, he was a great, great soul winner. But it's amazing when you read his, his, some of his sermons where the persuasive element is there. I think it's worth bearing it in mind. I don't know. The Bible says, uh, scatter your seed, don't withhold your hand, for you know not which shall prosper, this or that. I don't know who's going to be saved. I'm not going to wait till I find out who's a likely customer. Sometimes all we do in our personal uh, persuasion is to bring them from almost nothing to something. Some of us, all we do in our preaching is to start them out of their refuges of sin and make them think. I've been on the radio now recently and I've heard, oh, such good news of good news of tough, wicked uh, workmen getting smitten down by the word of God. One of them said to another man, he said, I'm nearly done for. He said, I'm nearly done for. It won't be long now. I'm going to be converted. He said, I know it. It's coming. <laughs> but, but I don't even know who he is. Because I was told by my nephew who was in the van listening to these men talking to each other. Sometimes that's all you do. You, you set them and you start them out. I don't know who, but sometimes I've known who. Sometimes I, I, I was preaching in Swansea one night and I knew, I knew there were two people on the gallery. I, I knew as I was preaching they're going to get saved. Those two there, they're going to get saved. And so they did. I was preaching in Cardiff one afternoon and as I preached I could only see one person there, one young woman. And I wasn't looking at her because she was a beautiful young woman. I've seen much more beautiful ones, I can tell you. But uh, at the end of the meeting, I went down to the congregation. I said, Miss, I said, I don't know you, but I believe God is speaking to you. She said, how did you know? I said, I don't know how I know, but I know. <laughs> and, 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 two women standing with their backs turned and said, Oh, Mr. Shepherd, we're so glad. It was her mother and her grandmother who I'd led to the Lord a few months before. This girl was, a, she was evil, she was evil. But God pointed it out to me, but that's exceptional. Evan Roberts, the great Welsh revivalist, could tell you exactly where the Spirit of God was moving. There's a man under the gallery there. Pray him through, pray him through, and then a little later, Mr. Roberts, he's come, he's come. The place burst into praise, you see. Well, I haven't reached that stage. I don't know who is going to be born again. My duty, therefore, is to, to save them all. And I would say this to you, quoting Spurgeon again, or was it Moody? I'm not sure, but it's a good quote. He said, you preach to everybody, and if somebody gets saved who was not elect, God will forgive you. <laughs> Rather naughty. You know, my talk is degenerating almost into a critique of Calvinism. I'm, I'm, I'm 80% Calvinist. I won't tell you what the 20% is, <coughs> but... Don't you believe it? You can't, you can't be brought up in Wales without believing. What we're asking for is for God to work, God to move, without a shadow of doubt. But think of these other things. Think of these other things. We've got to bear in mind. And by the way, we haven't got a photocopier here, have we? Uh, no. Uh, you, I, I could think, if I can find a means, that I will give you these. Uh, the, the notes are in full here. A little later we can talk about that. But uh, really... Uh, Get them all and look at them and read them uh, slowly. Now here's the next thing I want to say. Satanic pressure on people is relentless and universal and it has flood proportions. Now everybody says that Isaiah was the evangelical prophet with which I agree. But I go further and say I believe Isaiah was an evangelistic prophet. 
Because some of the things he says savors very much of a man who is bringing people to be right with God. He said, the children are brought to the birth, but there is no strength to deliver. He had preached until people were under conviction, but they were not coming through the impression you get through Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah 32, is the only place in the Bible where you are justified in being liberal. Because it says here, the instruments of the churl are evil. He deviseth, wicked devices, to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speak right. The vile person will speak villainy, his heart will work iniquity, and he will cause the soul of the hungry, empty the soul of the hungry. But the liberal, new translation, noble, but liberal will do fine. The liberal, verse 8, deviseth liberal things. Deviseth liberal things. What does he mean? Since the devil is so ingenious in his efforts to get people lost, what a, what a reproach when I'm a little bit squeamish about using means. Now, what means we use are governed by the message we preach. If the means I use limit my message, then the means are wrong. We understand that. Isn't it awful? Somebody got me to smoke. Somebody got me to drink. One man almost got me to go and cohabit with prostitutes. But that Saturday afternoon, God chose to save me. I can't tell what he might have saved me from. But I was like, hey, come on, Dave, have, have a cigarette. Oh, no, I've never smoked. Come on, what I used to say. See? Okay, then I'll have one. <coughs> the day came when I was a slave. I smoked Egyptian silk-tipped diamond-shaped cigarettes. Never blew out the smoke. Where it went to only the Lord, no. <coughs> Slave, if I couldn't, I'm not exaggerating, if I couldn't get cigarettes on a Sunday, because Wales was dry on a Sunday, I used, to, I used to smoke rope. I used to cut a piece of rope, light it, and I got out of the field till Monday. So. Now, do you know how that started? Somebody got me to smoke. Do you, know, do you know how I started to take my first pint of dirty, filthy beer? Said, ah, come on, Dave. One boy on television was asked how he started to drink. He said, well, when I went to the pub, he said, and brought my orange juice to the table, my friends poked such fun at me that in the end I went back and got beer. And that's how I started drinking, because my friends laughed me into it. Now, surely you know that that's true. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're following the herd. My people, the things they do. And uh, we say, right, that's, that's life. That's why, by the grace of God, we, we try to outsmart the devil, outthink the devil. If he's got ideas, sure, we're great to see this, this, some of these things that are on the board here. I don't want to go to extremes, but I'm glad that I've always tried to think of new means of conveying the gospel to people. I was in the station in Swansea one day, long time ago. There was a machine there. You put a pen in, then the arrow went round, and you pulled a lever, and a letter was impressed into a strip of aluminium, or aluminum, as the Americans would say. And you see, then out came your name. And you could put it uh, whenever you like. Now it's more posh. Now you do this and you do that. See, but in those days it was aluminium. And then I thought one day, mm, there's an idea. I put a penny in, and then I, in fact I put more than one penny. Uh, Jesus Christ died for. And then I didn't pull the lever to get it out. See, 
because I thought, now the next man who goes there, he'll put his name in, see? Uh, <laughs> <coughs> hey, Brother Levi, see? I wasn't cheating, because he could cut it off and use it again. <laughs> uh, you might think, oh, that's, that's pretty daft. Yes, I, I've done some daft things in my time. When I was in London, I saw a board outside a shop advertising things for sale and uh, rooms to let and buying. I went into the man. I said, are you willing to advertise anything in that frame? He said, yes, so long as they give me four pence a week. Uh, four pence, which you don't remember, or four old pennies. I said, I'll be back. So I got home, wrote on a postcard, at the top of big word, wanted, wanted. That's what they all had, see, to let, wanted. And then I said, men and women... Wise enough to know there's something wrong with the world. Two men and women honest enough to admit they're part of what's wrong with the world. Three men and women humble enough to accept God's remedy in Jesus Christ. Any inquiries apply, 57 Limington Road. I went back to the man and said, can you put that in there? He looked at it and he said, yeah. He said, if I can get that for three pence, he said. <laughs> so, for a long time... I was advertising the gospel. Now, some people think that that's uh, ludicrous, you know. It's not, not decorous. It's infradig. A fool for Christ's sake can something be literal. Oh, I've stood up in canteens. I've stood up in ships. I've stood up in the refectories of universities. I was in Lampeter. No, I beg your pardon, in Wrexham. Wrexham, in Cartrevelet. And uh, they'd advertise me all over the place. You see, David Shepherd in there. And I said, people don't know David Shepherd. They see my name on a poster. So when we were having lunch in the refectory, full of students and full of the staff, I said to the Christian students, I mean, now don't worry with what I'm going to do. I said, don't worry. So, <laughs> and then, then I, I, I got up in the middle of the refectory. I said, ladies and gentlemen, you've all seen the name all over the campus you must be wondering who on earth is this David Shepherd you're supposed to come and listen to and I said I think it's very wrong of people to invite you to meet a stranger so I thought you might like to know uh, what he's like he said here I am so look forward to seeing you okay and <laughs> I don't know who was the most shocked <laughs> the college on me. but now the point is the wicked deviseth the instruments of the churl are evilly devised. They're devising. The world is proliferating the devices. And in these days of video and dirty, filthy literature and, 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 and possession of the media, saturation of the world, we, we, it's almost a lost cause. You can forgive a Christian for going out of his way to counteract the schemes of the devil. Now, I think that that is very important. Quickly now, I must finish. I'll be giving you a talk this afternoon on conscience. The ally, God's ally in man. And uh, that will answer the question. But may I remind you right here now. It says in the parable that I read earlier, Go and tell them that were bidden to come. There is a bidding word in human nature. I do not mean divine spark, but something that God has put there. God has put something in man that tells man two things about God. His Godhead and his power. That's all it tells them, but it's there. 
when you are calling on men to respond, please remember that there is a preliminary pressure in a man that can come alive as you speak. I'll give you examples of men who gave the impression that they couldn't care less. But as you press the plains of Christ, suddenly they broke. Oh, I've just worked with workmen in Pisgah now. I did all the getting the cement and the wood and the... And these 19 men from the council, when they saw a minister, they clammed, you see. They thought he was a sissy, you see. I said, you men are idiots, I said. I, I eat cornflakes, in case you don't know. And I fell in love and I married and I got three children. I said, what's the matter with you? I said. But before the end of the week, they changed their tune when I saw me beating them at their own game, see. Uh, and one of them, big fellow, gave the impression. You might impress them, but you don't impress me. I said, oh, yes, I will. <laughs> oh, yes, I will. Not because of me. Because of what my Bible tells me. God hath showed it unto them so that they are without excuse. That'll be interesting this afternoon. Go and tell them that are bidden to come. If you will persevere with your loving, and notice that word loving, constraint. I don't like the word pressure. The love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge and if all Christ died for all, then we're all dead. You will find that something will begin to flicker. Something will begin to flicker. Well, now finally, the cross of Calvary gives us the right to demand a response. Will you please remember what Paul said to the Corinthians and in saying it to the Corinthians, he was saying it to the world, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body and your spirit which are God's. The cross of Calvary gives me all the right in the world to call on a sinner to repent, to surrender. I met a rather posh Englishman one day. I said, sir, if you're not a Christian, you're a thief. He said, good heavens. He said, what did you say? <laughs> Mind you, I, I didn't go up to him in the street. No, I, I, we had been talking. We'd been talking, see. I said, sir, if you're not a Christian, you're a thief. He said, what did you say? I said, if you're not a Christian, you're living a life that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to somebody else. You and I have forfeited the right to live. If Christ died for all, then we're all dead. We have no right to be alive. We are alive by permission of grace. You don't belong to yourself. Somebody died on a cross to pay for you. Now, there's only one point. But isn't it too bad that you can preach the agonies of Christ and then you worry whether somebody in there will get lost if you make an appeal. They can't be more lost. They're lost now. Now, I'm assuming some things, as I told you in my opening words, I'm not a great appeals man. My best way of winning soldiers is to come down from the pulpit and go down to the audience. For years, some of you who know me, I like to go down... I, I do make appeals. I made an appeal once and out of a congregation of a hundred and one thousand and about seven hundred in the cinema, one hundred and fifty people walked to the front to be saved. There's something very satisfying about it, but if they don't go on, what's the point? No, I'm not a great appeals man. I like to go down from the congregation, from the pulpit and say, nice to see you here tonight. You heard what I said tonight, now what about it? 
And I can remember in a place called Dolice, I met two women who tried to separate instances. You know, no, well, I'm here, but that's about all. As by the grace of God, I pressed the message again. I pressed the message. Not the appeal. I didn't press the appeal, but the message, the truth. They came from their lost condition, both, to be saved. Now, I have the right to say, if I hadn't done that, they could have been lost forever. I do not have the right to say, God would have seen to it. I be very careful about that. I've often asked, why is there a concentration of like-mindedness in so many countries? Why is it 94% Catholic in Ireland? Why is it, was it at one time almost 100% atheism in Albania? Why is it totally Muslim in Iran, with a few exceptions of the Christian Church? Why this concentration of like-mindedness? Be very careful when you say that God has arranged it that way. Men have been left to themselves and they've picked it up from people who want their own way. They've been confused by a religion that has departed from God. And then some people say, Oh, you mustn't, you mustn't urge them, you know. You're usurping the power of the Holy Spirit. It's too bad, isn't it? Too bad. Somebody said to Dr. Torrey once, I don't like your methods, Dr. Torrey. Well, funnily enough, said Dr. Torrey, I don't like them myself. I'm looking for better ones. Tell me, what are your methods? He said, I don't have any. He said, well, I like my way of doing it better than I like your way of not doing it. You know, there's, there, there, there's something that you, you've got to do. But at the end of the day, you're not going to know. He said, try as Jonathan said to his armor bearer. There was the enemy over there. There was his army. Well, David's army and Saul's army doing nothing. And he said to his armor bearer, come on, he said, let's go over to the camp of the enemy. Peradventure the Lord will work for us. He didn't say, we'll have a great victory. He said, we don't know, but let's have a go. Let's have a go. Now, I don't want to treat souls as people on which we have a go. I don't mean that. But I like the way Jonathan said, we don't know what God's going to do, but we'll go and find out. Now, that's uh, most satisfying. I come to the end of many an encounter with you and they've not got saved. They've not got saved. But I take heart from the fact that Jesus let one young man go and he never got saved. And Jesus didn't reduce his terms. Say, okay, well, you can get saved a little different from the others. No, no, no. So I, I, I don't despair. But for pity's sake, until I know differently, I'm going to urge, urge, urge with all my heart. Will you believe me if I tell you, and with this I close, some time ago a man died by the name of Stan Ford. Stan was a brethren evangelist and he was a good evangelist. He preached a good word. And uh, Stan, as you know, was a boxer, heavyweight boxer. He had been fighting with Ben Ford, the South African champion. I know all this because I was a boxing myself, you see. And Stan Ford was in San de Bia in Wales and there was a fellow there who was the son of a very godly father and mother. And I knew that they were praying for him, you see. And this is what he told me, not Stan, but this fellow. One night, he agreed to go to the meeting where Stan Ford was preaching. He knew what Stan Ford was for, and after, for his soul. So he did what all the wicked do. They flee when no man pursueth. Then he flew. But anyway, one night he agreed to come, you see. And Stan Ford saw him, see. And Stan went up to him and said, Hello, he said, my dream. Ah, uh, Nice to see you, you see. And Stan Ford's hands like a shovel. You, you know, when, you, when you've been hitting people, your hand grows a bit. But uh, <laughs> he, 
His hand was like his own. So he, he took him by the hand. Nice to see you here, he said. And uh, fell after shaking hands, trying to pull it out. But Stan, he said, you should have been here before, shouldn't you? Oh, he said, yes. And he said, you know, your mother and father pray for you, aren't they? He said, yes. They want you to get saved. Oh, he said, yes, I know. And he said, what is more? He said, you know you should get saved, don't you? He said, yes. Then come with me. <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you to do that. After all, you're not Stanford. But uh, the boy told me that. And Stanford got him to do what he knew he should have done long ago. He didn't get him to do what he didn't want to do or didn't think he should do. He got him to do, tell them that are bidden to come. And God stand knew that he had been bidden, been bidden. And if you put all these together, then maybe you won't let people talk you out of loving constraint on people. They're so lost, they're so alone, they're so much in the dark. They're in the highways, the byways, they're lame, they're blind. The devil is so industrious in keeping them lost. Shall he be said to do more for them than we do for their souls? God forbid. Amen.